So go ahead and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to continue on in our look at Paul's epistle to the uh, church in Corinth. And if you recall, we are in the middle of what we are showing or describing as a series of proofs that Paul is using to defend his both character, his position in Christ, his ministry, and uh, his fellow workers of the faith. And he's doing this uh, to refute the accusations that were being made about him by false teachers who had come into Corinth in his absence. And so, as you know, as we've looked at this letter so far, Michael has shared that there's uh, not a ton of structure in this letter per se. We don't have the same sort of marching orders that we have in a lot of the other epistles, like, now, because of this, do this. But we are able to see in Paul's defense and in his text uh, some theological truths that we can then uh, apply to our own lives. And so we're going to have that again this morning. And I was talking with Michael before we got started a couple minutes ago. I said, this passage this morning is doesn't have a lot of structure to it per se. It's, it's a little bit blurry. We're going to see some concepts that Paul has already spoken about, some principles and some metaphors uh, that he's going to continue on to use. And then we're going to see a, a concept that he's going to start to introduce that we'll then see next week as well. So this morning, we're looking at proof number three, if you will. And proof number three, uh, we described as Paul being adequate because he has a clear conscience before men and in the sight of God. We said that we had about four proofs that Paul was using to defend why he is adequate. And we saw that back in chapter 2 when he posed that rhetorical question, who is adequate for these things? And we said, well, who is adequate for what things? Well, he said that they are a fragrant aroma for Christ and that everywhere they go, everywhere Paul and his fellow workers of the faith go, God uses them to impart the knowledge of himself to the people they're in contact with. So God is using Paul and his fellow missionaries as a fragrant aroma for the knowledge of God. And he says, and who's adequate for this? Well, we are because, and then he's been giving us these series of proofs, because we don't peddle the word of God like others do. And so this morning, he says, because we minister a new covenant and with a clear conscience before we men and in the sight of God. So look at chapter 4. We will begin in verse 1, and we're just going to go through verse 12 this morning. I'll go ahead and read that for us. He says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. See that principle that we mentioned there? And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said light, 
shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So we'll stop there because that's going to kind of be our first section. We'll continue on to uh, verse 12 towards the end. But if you saw this text that we just read, you see that he's uh, talked about adulterating or walking in craftiness with regards to the word of God or peddling it, if you will. Um, He's talked about uh, a concept of perishing and uh, veiling. We saw that last week with regards to uh, the Old Covenant compared to the New Covenant. He's talked about the glory that Jesus Christ is owed just now. So we have some of these concepts and these principles that he's continuing to use in his illustration of why he is adequate and his accusers are not. And so he says in verse 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. And so we say, well, what ministry is this? Well, the ministry that he just told us about that we looked at last week, and that is the ministry of the new covenant. Right? He says that we are ministers of a new covenant, no longer the law and the old covenant, for it was fading in its glory, but the glory of the new covenant is everlasting and it's permanent. And so he says, we are ministers of a new covenant. And here he says, because of that new covenant that I just told you about in the end of chapter 3, we have this ministry and we do not lose heart. What I think is kind of interesting is he says, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, it's kind of, kind of like a, uh, a qualifier there, if you will, as we receive mercy. And what I think he's saying there is that at the moment God saved him, At the moment that God extended his mercy towards Paul, he received this assignment. We say in church that mercy is when we've been spared of the penalty or the consequences that we deserve as a result of our sin and our actions, right? When when you don't get spanked or grounded for something you did, your parents have have extended mercy towards you. And then we talk about grace being this application whereby God extends something to us that we didn't earn and don't deserve. So mercy is sparing us something that we do deserve, and then the grace is giving us something that we didn't earn and that we don't deserve. And so I think what Paul's saying here is that at the moment that he was saved and received God's mercy, he was also given this ministry. And the ministry is to be a servant of the new covenant. Now think about that in your lives. The moment that God extended mercy to each and every one of us, meaning the moment he said, you're no longer guilty of your sin and you're no longer worthy of eternal condemnation, at the same time you received a ministry as well. And that ministry for each and every one of our lives is to share the gospel and proclaim the name of Jesus. So in the same way that Paul says, as we receive this mercy, that is true of us here at Renew as well. You have an assignment on your lives and you have a calling to spread the knowledge of God everywhere you go. As we said in week one, to be a fragrant aroma. But he says, after he kind of gives that descriptor of this ministry, he says, we do not lose heart but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. We do not lose heart. Remember how this letter started? Let's go back to uh, chapter 1 for a minute, if you would. 
chapter 1, let's look at um, verses 3 through 11. Michael shared this with us. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that, as you are sh- uh, sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but we trust in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. You also joining and helping us through your prayers that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through the many prayer, the prayers of many. Okay, so we looked at that. We, we jumped back there for just a moment. Do you think Paul was wrestling with something? Do you think he was feeling heavy laden, worn out, beat up, tired? I think so. I mean, look at what he says about comfort. The comfort that he needs, that he finds in God. The comfort that he knows his audience needs when they're going through trials. And he points all that back to God and says, he ultimately is the comforter. And so what he tells us here in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, we don't lose heart. And I think we can safely say that Paul had a lot of reasons that he could have lost heart. He had a lot of circumstances that he was going through. He had a lot of trials in which he could have just said, I, this is it, I give up. Just game over and throw in the towel. But he says, no. We don't lose heart. It would be very easy for us to just go through the motions and quit. But he says, that's not us. That's not who we are. And the reason it's not who we are is because that's not who Christ is. And that's not who Christ is in our life. He is our comforter, as he already told us back in chapter 1. And what I think he does here in verse 2, he says, gives us some examples of what it might look like to not lose heart. And in a way, we see some subtle jabs at his accusers again. Look at verse 2. He says, so we don't lose heart, but, in other words, instead of losing heart, We have made the decision to renounce things hidden because of shame. We have made the decision to not walk in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. And we, by the manifestation of truth, commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So he gives us sort of three things here that occur as a result of him not losing heart. And in those three things there, we see a sharp contrast to what his accusers and what the false teachers were doing. He's already told us that they adulterate the word of God. They compromise it. They peddle it. They lead people astray. 
He also knows that they proclaim themselves. That they're interested more in promoting who they are and not promoting Christ crucified. So he says, we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. Sometimes it might be a lot easier to continue on in the sin, right? Sometimes we look at the options we have before us and we go, you know, if we just chose the sin, that sure would be a lot easier. Sometimes choosing God's way means we're going to experience some difficulty or that we have to produce some extra effort. He says, we've renounced the things of shame. Paul told the Romans in chapter 6, we we saw this, don't celebrate the old ways of life that you used to live because all they did was lead to death. He's saying here, we renounce those things. But those false teachers, they glorify that stuff. They celebrate that stuff. Remember what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 about the gentleman that was caught in sin? He said, I've already judged that. You guys should do the same. When you see sin in your presence, you should judge it accordingly and appropriately. He said that uh, we've chosen not to walk in craftiness or adulterate the word of God. Look at what we see in the Western church today and in the church global at large. Isn't it sometimes a lot easier to adulterate and walk in craftiness and misrepresent the word sometimes? We see a lot of churches who do a huge disservice to this, don't they? Sometimes because it's just easier. It's not easy to put in the hard work and the dedication to really investigate and learn what God is saying here. He says, we haven't chosen to do that. We don't compromise and peddle the word of God. And then he says, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Remember what he said about the false teachers? He says, um, are we looking for letters of commendation to you or from you like others do? Remember the practice of the time? Remember what things were going on in the culture at that time? It was normal to get letters of recommendation, if you will, to have resume builders. He says, we don't do that. In fact, what we're doing is commending ourselves in the hearts and the conscience of men in the sight of God. We don't need the letters. How we live and what we testify to is enough. The Strong's definition for conscience says that it is the faculty of the soul which distinguishes between right and wrong. The faculty of the soul which distinguishes between right and wrong. A few years ago, um, you remember remember that Rob Bell video? There was an interview that you're smiling already. You're like, I know where this is going. There was a there was a video that Michael had shared with me about uh, Rob Bell being interviewed by I believe he was a British um, radio um, host, 
And what was interesting was not only was there just the audio, but there was the actual video that you could see this exchange. And the host was challenging uh, Mr. Bell about his position and his assertion um, that there essentially is no hell, that there is no eternal condemnation. And the reason I'm sharing this is because there was a point in the video where you could watch uh, Mr. Bell's countenance literally change. In the video, you could almost see the moment where his countenance just kind of shifted and dropped to the point where he was having to make an active, concerted decision to either embrace truth or reject it and hold to his position that he was advocating. The radio host crafted an interview and an exchange with him in such a way that he got very pointed and Mr. Bell had to make a decision right then and there. He had to go to his conscience and go, I'm either going to stick with my story or I'm going to accept truth that is being highlighted right here in front of me, in my face. And he just chose to hunker down and stick with his story. And I I bring that up to just say that Paul, I believe, is revealing that when, when he espouses truth properly from the Word of God, that when that is investigated and looked at objectively and with good conscience among men, we have to admit that what Paul is preaching is right. And he says, I do this in the sight of God, and in your good consciences you know that what me and my fellow workers are advocating is right and it is of God. We had a wedding that we attended. Susan and I went to a wedding on Friday night. And we were there with my friends Jamie and Brenda, who I had an awesome privilege and opportunity to officiate their wedding many, many years ago. And we were there attending the wedding of my friend John. And after the ceremony, Jamie and Brenda had asked me, did John ask you to officiate this wedding? And I said, no, he didn't. And they said, we were wondering because we know that John's lifestyle would be somewhat contradictory to what you would present as an officiant. And I said, yeah, and that may be why John never reached out to me in the first place, because he knows that. But but I had an opportunity to share that our other friend, Brandon, whose wedding I also officiated many, many years ago, he's a non-believer as well. But when he reached out to me and said, will you officiate our wedding? I said... I will, but you need to understand what I'm going to say, and you need to understand the position that I'm going to hold, and the truths that I'm going to highlight if I do this. And he said, I absolutely understand that, and that's what we expect from you. Now, this is a non-believer, and he said, I don't want you to compromise who you are and compromise what you're going to say, and I thought that was really, really cool. And so Susan tells this story that she was sitting out there on this beach down in um, Georgia, St. Simon's Island. And she had seen the crowd of people who were coming and attending this wedding. And she noticed that there were some gay couples. And so I get up there, and she had no idea what I'm going to talk about. So I get up there to officiate this wedding. And I, part of my message was what God created between man and woman. And what his intentions were. And she said, when I started out, she goes, oh no, oh no, he's not going to go there. He's not going to, oh, yep, he just did. She said she started looking around and specifically was looking at these couples that were together, you know, going, 
oh, she wanted to see their reaction. She wanted to see them start squirming in their seats and everything. And it was just funny when you hear her tell it because she's like, she knew it was coming. She's like, he's not going to, yep, he just did. He just offended about a third of the people here. I probably did. But the, the point of that is, uh, whether I had really recognized and known who had walked through that door onto that beach or not, I would not have compromised what I was going to say about God's design for his creation. And Paul is saying the same. He's saying it might be a lot easier that when we are tempted to lose heart and when we're going through all these trials and when life is really hard and being ministers of this new covenant is just beating us down, it'd be a lot easier just to continue on in sin. It'd be really easy for us to just uh, compromise the word of God and peddle it like the others do. It'd be pretty easy for us to just ask for letters of commendation, but instead, we don't do those things like the others do. And then in verse 3, but he says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, in some respects, I'm kind of looking at this as maybe a little bit of a, a bump out from what he's about to say. Because if you look at verse 7, he says, but we have this treasure. And oftentimes, you have to look at what the but is pointing to. Wait. Those are li- words to live by right there. Always make sure in life that you uh, look at what the but is pointing to. <laughs> no. Um, I think the but is him coming back. And for a moment, what he feels like he needs to address is if he's asserting that he's commending himself in the conscience of men and in the sight of God, and that what he is saying is right and it is true, as truth is manifested, then he's likely to receive some opposition or some questioning. What about the people who don't believe? And I think he takes a moment here to address that. In other words, if he's doing everything right like he's supposed to, and his naysayers are not, then what happens when some are veiled and reject the gospel? And So he's going to address that here for a moment. And he says, so even if our gospel, and I love this, our gospel, he takes ownership of it, right? The same way we should. It should be personal. It should be our gospel. (coughs) Is veiled. It is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world. So, He calls upon this previous metaphor that we saw last week. There's a veiling that's taking place, and he says that there's, a, there's an active force behind that, and it is the God of this world. So in other words, something else is preventing these people from seeing truth. Something else was preventing Rob Bell from seeing truth, or wanting to see truth. His heart has been veiled, Paul refers to them as blinded minds of the unbelieving. I think in some respects we could safely say that if someone did not accept the gospel, and did not receive Jesus Lord and Savior after hearing Paul's presentation, they're probably just not going to receive Jesus, right? I think that's a safe assumption. Because you know he's not going to miss an opportunity. And so he's saying here, look, it's not our fault when some did not believe. Because, and he says um, in verse 5, it's not our fault when some don't believe. 
because they have been veiled. They have hardened hearts. But look at verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. And then in verse 6, he gives us another reason. For God, who said light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. So he gives us a couple of reasons there. He says, so they don't believe because they've been veiled. And the veiler, if you will, is the God of this world. Not capital G. Not the God that Paul and his fellow workers serve. But the God of this world. And he says, we are doing our part. Because we preach Jesus, not ourselves. And we have been shown the light from God himself. And he introduces this kind of interesting concept here of bond servant. Did you guys catch that? He's used that before. At the beginning of Romans, he refers to himself as a bond servant. And the idea of a bond servant was somebody who willingly sold themselves or put themselves under the, the uh, ownership of someone in whom they owed a debt to. So as a means of repaying a debt that you might owe to somebody else, you would willingly say, I'll be your servant in order to pay off that debt. And Paul uses this term about himself. He says, in Christ Jesus, I'm a bondservant to you. So he sees himself as indebted to both the people he ministers to and as a result of the forgiveness and the grace that has been extended, the debt that has been canceled on his behalf by Jesus himself. I don't know that we fully grasp the gravity and the, the magnitude of what that meant contextually and how willing we might be to see ourselves or place ourselves in a similar context with regards to other people. That's pretty deep. To consider yourself a bondservant of somebody else willingly. And so in verses 5 and 6 he says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. Uh, for God who said, Light shall shine out of the darkness is the one who has shone in our hearts. He's introducing and using this term light also. He said, The unbelieving are blinded and cannot see the light of the gospel of glory of Christ. It was God who said, Light shall shine out of the darkness. He is the one who has shown in our hearts. He gives the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. All in those two and a half verses right there. Remember how Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus took place? Anybody remember what happened to him? What took place? Who knows? He appeared to him. And the text tells us that it was a bright, bright light. An amazing 
brilliant light and that that light was witnessed by the others who were present. Now, not everybody understood Jesus' words. Not everybody heard what Paul heard. But everybody saw this brilliant light. And so Paul calls upon this principle of light and its synonymism with God and what God has done throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Remember what John said about Jesus in chapter 1? That the light has come into the world and the darkness cannot overpower it. In 1 John, when we, when we looked at 1 John, he routinely said that Jesus is the light of the world, that in God there is light. In him there is no darkness, there is no sin. Anybody who walks in the light is in him. Anybody who claims not to sin is a liar and is not walking in the light. And so Paul takes this concept here, partly I think from his own personal experience, his own personal conversion, and he says, God has shown in our hearts so that, so that we may share the knowledge of him and the glory of God in the face of Christ. Remember how we ended last week? Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 18. We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. One of the things that we said last week was that Paul is saying, for those of us under the new covenant, we recognize that when we look at Jesus, we see the glory of God. And Paul is saying here at the end of verse 6, he's saying that God has shown light into our hearts so that we may cause others to realize that Jesus is the glory of God himself. Remember how he contrasted the glory of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant last week? And he said that the Old Covenant's glory is fading because something new and better has replaced it, that Jesus has come. He says, now, Jesus is the glory of God. And when we look at the face of Jesus, we see the glory of God. We mentioned last week that when uh, Jesus and Philip were having that exchange, Philip said, show us the Father. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Hebrews passage says that he is the exact representation of God. He is the radiance of God's glory. The exact representation of his being. Paul says that part of our assignment is to cause others to understand, to recognize that the person of Jesus is God's glory today. Now, I said that we're going to come back to this. Verses 7-12. through 12, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body, the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, 
that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, as he concludes this, so, death works in us, but life in you. So he's coming back to this point that he made in verse 2, and that is that he commends himself in the sight of men and God. He's coming back and he's saying that we experience affliction, we experience persecution, we experience hardship, and we do all of this so that when somebody looks at our lives, they have to say, yeah, that's truth. Anybody who looked at Paul had to admit, had to agree, had to understand that the life he lived and the persecution that he experienced and the affliction that he received was a direct result of truth being manifested through his preaching. He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Does anybody else have a different translation? Might say like jars of clay. Maybe Paul was a fan of contemporary Christian pop music. That's an older reference for the adults. You, kids, you guys know the band Jars of Clay? Christian band Jars of Clay at all? Nope. Blank stairs right there. There's a Christian band named Jars of Clay from, I don't know, probably, what, early 90s, mid-90s. So some translations might have a more, like a very literal uh, replacement for earthen vessel, which would be a jar of clay. And so oftentimes I think what is meant there is that uh, Paul is using this metaphor or this illustration of um, something that is uh, crafted, fabricated, and of somewhat frail nature, and certainly very earthly and very temporal. Okay. Michael shared with us several years ago when we went through that psalm series. Psalm 2 refers to the way God will deal with nations that conspire and rise up against him. And one of the verses in the psalm, he says that um, he will shatter with a rod um, these nations that conspire against him like clay shards or like earthen uh, pieces, if you will. There's there's a, a brittleness and a frailty and a temporal nature to the things of earth that God is able to um, put down. Job 10.9 says that God has made me as clay and he would return me to dust in the ground. Romans 9.21, Paul uses this illustration, this metaphor of God as a potter and he asks the question, does not the potter have the right to mold the clay as he desires. And so he's calling upon this general understanding of a consistent use of clay and, and pot and earthen vessel throughout scripture that his audience would have understood. And what he's saying here is, in these earthen vessels, in these somewhat frail jars, which are our bodies, what we have living through us is the power of God. 
not of ourselves, but because of Him. You've heard me refer to our bodies as meat suits. Paul's saying here that this is temporal. It's temporary. It's worldly. But residing in this vessel is the power of God. In this frail, worldly, natural, fading, aging, broken vessel is the power of God. And part of the way that is revealed is that things that should just crush this earthen vessel don't because God is at work in and through me. He says, This earthen vessel is afflicted in every way. It is crushed, perplexed, but not despairing. It is persecuted, but not forsaken. It is struck down, but not destroyed. And he says, the dying of Jesus in the body, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed. All of these things are taking place through affliction and persecution, and yet it's not completely and utterly destroying Paul. Remember how he said, we do not lose heart? He does not lose heart because though he may go through all of these things in his effort to promote the new covenant and to promote and preach Christ Jesus, none of this stuff destroys him. None of this stuff crushes this earthen vessel that he is. And it is because the power of God is operating through him. Not because he has manufactured power in and of himself, but because that is what God is doing through Paul. And then in verses 11 and 12, he says, For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. So Paul says that the natural affliction that he and his fellow workers experience routinely is ultimately leading to the salvation of others. Think about it. If Paul had not endured the lashings, the imprisonment, the shipwreck, the beatings, had he not persevered and gone through all that stuff, how many people might not have heard the gospel and might not have received salvation through Jesus? And so he says that the affliction that we're receiving in this mortal body and the, the dying, if you will, that's taking place is resulting in life for you all. It's resulting in life for many who hear our message. And Philippians 2.17 says, Even if I am poured out as a drink offering for God, I will gladly rejoice alongside you for your service for the Lord. If I have to die as a result, I'm willing to do that for Christ Jesus. In 2 Timothy, he uh, said to Timothy, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, but join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And then he goes on later on and says, I have been appointed as a preacher, teacher, and apostle, and for this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Nothing, nothing, nothing could separate Paul from the love of God. Nothing could separate him from the eternity that he was going to spend 
with God. He says, I'm not ashamed of what I preach. I'm not ashamed that I know that God, who has saved me, will guard my salvation regardless of the peril that I experience here and now. And so he has said to us that he commends himself to every man's conscience because Paul knows, one, he has not walked in craftiness, he has spoken truth, he has spoken Christ crucified, and he has not preached himself. He commends himself to every man's conscience because he knows he sees himself as a bondservant to those he ministers to. He is compelled to share the gospel and the news of God and the news of Christ everywhere he goes. He commends himself to every man's conscience because he knows that he gladly suffers in this life because his suffering leads to the salvation of others. And so, as our third proof this morning, we've seen that Paul says, I'm adequate to be considered a fragrant aroma for Christ. Way back in chapter 2, I'm adequate because when we preach, we don't adulterate the word of God. We don't walk in craftiness. We are poured out as a drink offering. We are afflicted. We're persecuted. We consider ourselves bond servants. We do all of these things because our entire lives and everything we do is an effort to glorify Christ Jesus. And when men look at us in the sight of God, they have to recognize and agree that what we do is right and what we do is of God. It is not manufactured from within ourselves. Rather, it is God working through temporary earthen vessels that he might be glorified. So I would challenge us this morning and ask us, myself included, how dedicated are we to the steadfast truth of the gospel? You know, do we sometimes want to manipulate it, distort it, kind of make it a little bit more palatable sometimes for the person we might be ministering to or the persons. I mean, think about how, how much easier it is sometimes to present like a nice, easy gospel that maybe falsely guarantees that nobody's going to have any troubles, that life is going to be really easy for them when they come to Christ. I mean, there's a lot of times where you hear a gospel that kind of a compromise to what God really says. But it's easier. It's more palatable. Nobody could look at Paul's ministry and go, um, he took the easy road. He watered down the gospel a little bit. He, uh, he made it more palatable so that people wouldn't be offended. Another thing I think we might want to consider for ourselves is um, when we go out into the world and, and we are operating and living our lives, are we considering ourselves as bond servants and slaves, if you will, metaphorically speaking, to those whom we are around? Are we compelled the same way Paul was because of the grace and mercy he found in Christ Jesus to now want to see that same 
truth applied in others' lives. I'll be honest, sometimes when I'm hanging around some unbelievers, I don't look at them or myself as a bondservant to them so that they might be saved. Shoot, I have a terrible attitude towards them sometimes. I look at them and go, they're idiots. Why don't they see truth? Why don't they just get with the program? Why don't they recognize that what I've got is a good thing? I'm not considering myself and looking at myself as a servant ministering to them at all in that case. Talk about pride. Paul's like, we serve you so that you would have salvation in Christ Jesus the way we do. And then the last thing would be any affliction that we might be suffering or experience. We're all going to go through stuff. We go through it here and we, we share it with each other and we lift each other up in prayer requests. But do others understand how God is using that for His glory? Or are we just only going through it, commiserating, and just asking for prayer about it, but never really celebrating and glorifying God through our trials? Think about the Witten family. Think about the, we'll call it affliction, but the, the trials that they've been going through with Walker. In some respects, you'd almost have no idea that these are trials for their family. Rather, what you hear out of them is routine and continued glory to God for what He's doing through their circumstances. What an amazing example of affliction in this life to earthen vessels that God is empowering to make Himself known to so many others. Think about the lives that have been touched through the Witten family and the exposure that God has gained through them in the medical profession and the places that they've had to go for service and care. I mean, they don't come in contact with a single person that doesn't hear about Jesus. And I don't know that I personally necessarily credit God for getting me through the persecution and the afflictions that I experience. And I do a, a disservice to the Lord, I believe. And I don't know if that's true of you guys or not. I know you go through trials. So to the others who are around you and watching you go through this, do they understand that it is for the glory of God? I'll finish with this. Romans 8.18, Paul said that, For I consider that our present sufferings are nothing compared to the joy that will be revealed in us. Our present sufferings are nothing compared to the joy that will be revealed. When you looked at Paul's life, and when others look at Paul's life, we have to agree. He had every reason to lose heart, but he stayed the course he finished the race strong. And the same should be true of us. That though we have many reasons to lose heart, that we would not. Because it is God operating and working in and through us. And it's not something we have to muster up with our own strength.